About a month ago, my, uh, we took a family vacation down to Southern California. We, uh, the purpose was to go to a, to a wedding down there, our nephew's wedding. And uh, my wife and I, Elaine, were driving in one car. And my daughter, son-in-law, and, and two kids were um, traveling with us. So they were in a car behind us. And we were caravanning down there. We had this trip all planned out. Uh, we had uh, not only the wedding to attend to, but we had a uh, day at the beach scheduled. Our grandkids had never seen the ocean, so that was a fun thing. Um, we also had a day scheduled at Disneyland. It was uh, Caitlin's uh, fifth birthday, and we were going to celebrate that at Disneyland. And for um, a few of us, we even had a Dodger game scheduled in there. So uh, we had this vacation all planned. And the journey got underway, and we were excited. And we had walkie-talkies between the two cars. Well, everything was going just the way we thought it would until we got just outside of Jordan Valley. <laughs> and that's when Lisa's voice came over the walkie-talkie and said, uh, I think we've got a flat tire. We're pulling over. So we said, okay. So we turn around and we join them. And together we helped them take everything out of the back of their car to get to the, to the spare tire. They put the tire on and, well, it was a little underinflated, but, it's, but it still worked. Um, and so for the next three hours, we drove 45 miles an hour to Winnemucca. And I thought to myself, God, why? We planned this vacation. This is not the journey that we had in mind. Why did you do this? And then I remembered, for the last few months, I've been praying that God would work on my attitude when I get behind the wheel. <laughs> See, I'm an impatient driver, and I get very impatient when people in front of me, in my opinion, are going too slow. And this is not right. I'm not, I'm not bragging about this. This is not good. Um, and I've been praying that God would work on that. Uh, that attitude of mine. And um, let me tell you, driving three hours at that speed while semi-trucks pass you, um, <laughs> that really helps. That really helps. So I had a chance to practice. I had a chance to practice this, uh, this idea of being patient behind the wheel. Well, today we're going to look at, a, uh, at the journey of the, uh, of the nation of Israel as they leave the Red Sea and they uh, embark on this, this journey into the unknown. And uh, sure enough, their journey is filled with unusual and unexpected twists and turns uh, as well. But to uh, provide a little backdrop, uh, so far in our study of Exodus, we witnessed the great crossing of the Red Sea. As you recall, the nation of Israel literally had its back to the sea. It had no place to go. Um, death was certain because the Egyptian army was closing in on them. Pharaoh and his army closing in. And uh, this was not going to be a pretty scene. They cried out to, to God, and God provided an escape route. He opened the waters. They escaped into the Sinai. And um, the Egyptians, on the other hand, were swallowed up by the sea. And God had literally saved them. God had literally redeemed the nation of Israel. Redeem them from certain death. And so this crossing begins a new, is really a new beginning. A life 
of a redeemed people of God. They experienced salvation in a very real way at that moment at the Red Sea. And for each of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, we too have experienced that kind of redemption. We've been saved as well. We've experienced salvation and we belong to Christ. And He's adopted us into His kingdom. The nation of Israel celebrated that saving on the shores of the Red Sea. And last week we saw how they sang and danced and just praised God for what He had done. You know, what a wonderful time of basking in God's redemption that must have been. And I'm sure it was really tempting for them to stay right there on the, um, on the beach, stay on the banks of the Red Sea. Uh, it was safe. It was um, comfortable. Um, if they're like me, I'd rather be at the ocean than other places. So uh, it was probably, that felt really good. But God knew that there were more lessons to be learned. God knew that he had things to teach these people, just like he has things to teach us. And it's in our journey through life that he does that. He uses life circumstances to grow us up, to change our character, and to make us more like him. And in Exodus, the journey is about to begin of these saved people as they step out into the unknown. But they're following God. And He's committed to walk with that path with us. God is committed to walk the path with us, for them as well as for us. But He uses life circumstances to teach us valuable lessons. And today, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to see that God uses um, the bitter waters of Mara to teach a very valuable lesson to the nation of Israel. So if you haven't already done it, turn to Exodus 15. We'll be beginning in verse uh, 22. And then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Sur. And they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Let me stop right there and uh, make a few comments. Um, the area that they were in is uh, the area that they call the Wilderness of Sur. This is generally believed to be the northwest corner, northwest region of Sinai. Uh, today, in that area, there are... Um, a number of uh, salt marshes and other bitter type lakes so it's very reasonable to assume that that's exactly where they were and they had traveled for three days three days uh, walking in uh, in the wilderness in the desert in the heat away from the sea into the uh, into the desert if anybody's ever done any traveling in the desert um, you know how important it is that you um, that you look for uh, oases, you look for places that, uh, that can provide some shelter and some water and so forth. And they were assuming, since God was leading them, they were assuming that that's exactly what God had in mind. And yet three days they traveled and no water. And they were getting thirsty. 
And then, in the distance, they spotted a lake. Now, I can just imagine that word probably started to permeate through the, through the, through the, uh, through the group for the nation. Uh, roughly two million people, we believe, by the way, walking. Um, probably those up, up front saw the, saw the lake in the distance. Word filtered through. I wouldn't be surprised to, to think that there could be some, some of the younger people, especially up towards the front, excited about this, maybe started to run towards the water. Who knows, maybe even wanted to dive in. Maybe they did dive in, only to find undrinkable, salty water. Great, great disappointment. And as the word of that came through the nation, I can just picture the people starting to wonder what is going on, turning to their neighbor and talking. Well, in verse 24, it tells us exactly what they did. So they grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the water became sweet. Now, the word used here for grumble grumble literally means to murmur or mutter in discontent or to complain. Does that sound familiar? Uh, doesn't it seem easy to grumble when God doesn't perform the way that we think He ought to? We sense God's leading and we step out in that direction. And then we're surprised because He doesn't do what we think He ought to do. I mean, the Israelites had just witnessed God's intervention some three days before. They had just seen his mighty hand, his mighty work. And in fact, at the end of verse 14, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 14, verse 31, it says, And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And yet they're grumbling. At Moses right now. And so what does God do? Well, I believe he uses this as his first teachable moment for, uh, for the nation of Israel. And that teachable moment is that you can trust me, he's saying. You can trust God even in the physical needs that we all have. Even in something as basic as water to drink. You can trust me. I will provide for you. But they had a hard time doing that. And we have a hard time doing that, don't we? And so they grumbled. So um, I, I can think of three, uh, three uh, reasons why we have and they have this tendency to grumble. Um, the first one is that uh, we don't like to be confused about what God's doing. We really long to put God in a box, don't we? We, we say, okay, oh, now I see what you're doing. Now I got it. Now I understand. See, so now this, this makes perfect sense to me. And then he throws you a curve, and you, you don't understand that. So we don't like confusion. We ask, why, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? We don't have to look very far 
to see examples of that. In fact, right here at Cole, um, we can see a lot of changes that have happened here. And it's confusing. We've seen uh, four of our pastors leave Cole, and that's confusing to us. And I, like so many, are saying, why? I don't understand. Why is this happening? God, you're not performing, you're not doing what I thought you would do. But I can tell you what he is doing now as I look and I look around and I see what's happening. I can't tell you why that happened, but I can tell you what he is doing. What he is doing is that in the midst of this, the elders recognize that the pastoral staff needs and deserves some increased shepherding, some more guidance and direction. And they've made the, some changes and made some, taken some steps to accomplish just that. Also, the elders have for some time have longed for um, each of the elders to be more involved in the individual ministries that they've been assigned to and to shepherd pastoral staff. And in the midst of people leaving, we've seen, I've seen, um, many, many of the elders step uh, in into ministries, whether it's junior high or senior high or uh, whatever the ministry is. Um, they've stepped into it, and they are very much involved now. Just what we have longed for, and yet for some reason until now, it hasn't happened to the extent that we wanted to see it happen. So there have been changes amongst the elders in the midst of all this. I've also seen God do something with the pastoral staff that remains. The ten pastors that we have on staff, there is a renewed enthusiasm and excitement, a renewed commitment to coal that didn't, uh, that didn't exist not that long ago. And that's been exciting to see. That's been something that God has done here. And as I look out at this congregation, I know of many, many of you that are uh, lay, lay people who are stepping into ministry that haven't stepped into it before. When suddenly there's not a pastor to head up a ministry, um, many of you have stepped forward. Our junior high and our senior high uh, gatherings are being taught by lay people, uh, e even right now as we speak. And uh, many, many people have stepped into ministry. Our, as uh, Nancy mentioned, our um, uh, children's ministry board is, uh, is, is filled, pretty much filled. I think there may be one class that's, that's not permanently opened um, because people have stepped up, because um, lots and lots uh, of things like that have happened. So why did God allow this to happen with pastors leaving, with changes going on here? Why did he allow the, the hurt feelings, the, the, the difficulty of saying goodbye to some dear friends? Uh, why did he do that? I don't know. But I do know what he is doing. And what he is doing is pretty remarkable, pretty miraculous. And what he did at Mara is pretty remarkable as well. It isn't what they expected, but it's, it's a... It's a remarkable thing that he did. The uh, other day I received an email from David Roper who uh, quoted an uh, author by the name of Carlo Corretto in his book, The God Who Comes. 
And in talking about his uh, journey in the, in the desert of life, uh, this is what he says, I must accept the wind, the sand, the night's cold, and the day's heats, the discomfort, the poor health, and the disappointments as speeches made by God to teach me poverty and patience, not as provocations for useless complaining. I think that's really the challenge to all of us. If we look at the difficulties that we encounter, the surprises that we encounter in life, and we see them, we say, this is confusing to me, but you know, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to grumble about it. Instead, I'm going to say, God, I don't know why you allowed this. I don't have a clue. But somehow, I'm going to believe that you're going to make something very special happen as a result of it. That's the first point, confusion. Second point, uh, why we grumble, uh, things that happen when we grumble, is that we have a tendency to blame somebody, don't we? If things don't go the way we want, um, it's got to be somebody's fault. And we usually don't begin with God. We usually begin with somebody else, maybe a little closer. Our parents, our teacher, the elders of the church, the president of the United States, um, somebody. But Scripture is clear that God has put, uh, everybody that's in authority, God's put them there, and He uses them, and He does what He does through them. And so when, when the, the nation of Israel grumbled in verse 24, so the people grumbled at Moses. When they're grumbling at Moses, they're really grumbling at God, aren't they? I mean, they could see the pillar of fire and, and the cloud as well as anybody else. They, they knew God was leading them this direction. And as I read before, just a few verses before, they praised uh, God and they praised Moses and acknowledged that he was truly God's leader, and yet now they're grumbling at them. So the challenge again to all of us, I think, is to resi resist that tendency to blame, um, to blame leadership, somebody in leadership. It doesn't say, you notice that it does not say they had a discussion with Moses. They asked Moses some questions. They voiced their concern to Moses. It doesn't say those things. It says they grumbled. And that's, that's, where our, uh, that's unfortunately where we tend to go. The, uh, the third thing that I notice here when things don't go the way they're supposed to and our, we find ourselves grumbling, I think we have to acknowledge it's basically, it's really a lack of trust in God is what it's all about. God is not performing like we want. And uh, for the nation of Israel, it's hard for me to believe that they thought that, well, perhaps God isn't powerful enough to supply water. That couldn't be possible, not after what he just did. So about the only conclusion is, well, he must not really care that much about us. But we know that that's not true. In, uh, Jesus is uh, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 25 and 25 and 26. And uh, he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body for what you shall put on. 
Is not life more than food, and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So Jesus is reaffirming the fact that God knows what we need, and he promises to take care of those needs. We don't have to believe that he's not going to take care of us. Moses, on the other hand, didn't grumble. Do you notice what he did? He cried out to God. And God provided in an unexpected way. He pointed Moses to a tree or a branch or a piece of wood from a tree. We're not sure exactly what. But whatever it was, it made the water drinkable. And God answered Moses' cry for help, just like he'll answer yours and my cry for help. <clears throat> the year was 1989, and I had worked for the same company for um, about 15 years, when suddenly I was informed that uh, with some management changes and other things going on, our parent company was purchased by another company, but I didn't have a job any longer. And the way it was done was uh, I didn't have a job any longer. Uh, I found that out at noon one day, and uh, at 5 o'clock that night, uh, I had to turn in my keys. Uh, I no longer had a uh, company car that was our primary mode of transportation as a family. Um, we didn't have a country club membership any longer, uh, which had become a social circle for us. Elaine enjoyed playing tennis there, and I enjoyed playing golf and tennis, and, and our kids took swimming lessons there. Suddenly that was gone, not to mention income that was suddenly gone. So we, um, Elaine and I sat down and uh, looked at our budget and redid our budget, and we realized that with our savings account and with some severance pay that, uh, that, we, that I received, that we had um, three months worth of income available, money available to support us while I looked for another job. I was the, by the way, I was the sole breadwinner of the family at that point. And we had two t teenage daughters at home as well. Um, needless to say, I was wondering, God, what are you doing? And are you going to take care of me? Are you going to provide for me and for our family? Well, um, I sent out lots of resumes, and I talked to a lot of people, and I interviewed, and I did all those things that you're supposed to do. But I did it constantly reminding myself that God's the one that will open doors or close doors. He's the one that will provide. I need to do my part, but he'll, but he'll provide in his timing and in his way. And I remember at one point, as the three months was ticking along, still no job, I remember saying that, uh, praying, uh, God, this house that we built, this house that we built is very special to us, but it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to you. And I remember saying, um, 
And if that means that you need to take this house, then that's okay with me. And I meant it. And there was a sense of uh, peace that came over me uh, in the midst of all that. It turns out that three months to the day, I started uh, work with a new company. Um, I still don't know why. I sent a resume this place and somebody else told somebody else who told somebody else and I don't know how it happened, but uh, that's how it was. And so there was um, income once again. And once again, I was reminded that God really does provide and He does care. And He will find a way. It may not look like we think it's going to look, but He will find a way. And in the midst of all that, I, uh, I'm not an artist, but I uh, had a duck decoy, you know, one of these little decoys, and, and it was uh, kind of a paint-by-numbers duck decoy thing, if you will. <laughs> so I, you know, I took the green paint and I put it where it was supposed to. In the end of the month, looking for a job, uh, in my spare time, I painted this decoy. Well, it looks like a paint-by-number duck decoy, but it is probably displayed next to our TV on an entertainment center, and it serves as a reminder uh, to me and to our whole family that God is uh, faithful and that God does indeed provide. Uh, and every time I start to wonder about that, uh, I just look at the decoy, and I'm, I'm reminded of it. So he will provide for us. Let's, uh, uh, the text continues um, in uh, the middle of verse 25. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on which I have put on the Egyptians for you. For, excuse me, for I, the Lord, am your healer. The text says that God gave them a statute and a regulation. Uh, now, there's no indication just what exactly what that might have been. We know, for example, that uh, the nation hadn't yet received the Ten Commandments. They hadn't received the um, Mosaic Covenant. All of that's going to happen at Mount Sinai some oh, three months or so further into the journey. Um, but what God does do is He gives them what we can call ground rules for the journey, if you will. By telling them that they should listen to the voice of God, they should be obedient to His commandments, and they should keep His statutes. And it seems that Israel's failure to trust God to supply their drinking water prompted God's disclosure of these ground rules and thus provides a perfect backdrop for God to test them at the end of verse 25. He said he not only provided these statutes and regulations, but there he tested them. So I thought it might be worthwhile to make sure we understand what God's tests look like. I think in our mind, a test, when we think of tests, we think of final exams. Or we think of uh, driver's tests or an SAT test. Something where we're going to sit down 
and somebody else is going to primarily it's for somebody else to determine how much we know in effect somebody else to judge us to judge how um, how good we are how smart we are how um, learned we are and I think our misunderstanding and misconception mis uh, of God sometimes results in us believing that he's a judge and he tests us for this very purpose and it's easy I think to come to the conclusion that that's what he was doing with the nation of Israel he was testing them because he was giving his uh, his wrath and his his judgment that side of it but the t but verse 26 ends that the Lord for I the Lord am your healer and it really softens the text considerably so God is not in this instance he's not speaking on behalf of the judge he's speaking on behalf of the healer he's saying I'm gonna give you some words to live by if you do these things life is gonna be a whole lot better for you and it's in your best interest if you do it because I am your healer I'm the great physician an analogy might be if he was a judge he might say if you obey the speed laws I will not give you a ticket but a more um, I think a more appropriate analogy would be if you obey the speed laws it'll be less likely that you're injured in a car accident they're both true but the emphasis on the latter has to do with I'm here to help I'm here to provide for you I'm here to help you and so God is speaking fundamentally most fundamentally as a healing God here not as a judging God um, the our, our section today ends with uh, verse 27 they came to Elam where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms and they camped there beside the water archaeologists believe that they might know the actual location of Mara and we don't know if they're right but if they are then Elam with its twelve springs of water and seventy date palms is most likely they say about seven miles away I was thinking about that seven miles away is not that far God could have had them travel those seven additional miles and what they would have found is they would have found water drinkable water great water they would have found a lot of shade the place that they believe is Elam today it also has tamarack trees big big trees uh, provide a lot of shade uh, a true oasis just what they had hoped for he could have done that but you know what he loves us too much instead he stopped them in a salt marsh even when they were thirsty so that he could teach them a lesson a lesson that only a loving parent would teach to their children no he loves you and me too much to allow us to just be physically comfortable and it's out of his love for us that he tests us for the purpose of revealing to us our heart attitude so trust him he's trustworthy and he knows what's best for you
Let's pray. Father, we uh, just give you uh, ourselves. We give you our concerns about tomorrow, our concerns about how you will take care of us. We thank you for this example that we saw this morning about the miraculous things that you did for the nation of Israel. And each of us has stories to tell about how miraculously you've worked in our lives as well. Thank you for being that kind of God who loves us and holds us in your hands. We thank you this morning and we pray in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand up as we respond. Just a few announcements here. Uh, let's not put this down so I can see everything here. Uh, we've got a um, uh, concert of prayer coming up. Let's not forget that. And uh, also a congregational meeting on the 24th. You'll hear more about the format of that um, uh, next Sunday. But I um, want you to join us for that. I know there's a growth group table in the back and encourage people to uh, visit that and get involved in a growth group. And also there's a men's ministry table on the other side over here. So uh, those are some exciting things that we have, we have going here at Cole. Just to close up, let me uh, read some uh, additional verses out of, um, out of Matthew 6, starting in verse 
31. Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we clothe? How shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen, huh? <laughs> yeah, so go and uh, enjoy the journey that God has for you today, knowing that tomorrow He holds it in His hand and it'll be okay. <laughs>